So to begin, if both of you don't mind introducing yourselves and then start asking questions. Uh, my name is Jonathan Neal. Um, I'm, a, I'm a writer um, and a historian and um, a political activist, mainly a climate activist these days. Um, and I grew up in the United States. Um, I live in Britain and I am... Um, um, I haven't been in Afghanistan for a long time. I was there as an anthropologist when I was a young man doing field work. Um, but I've tried to follow what's happening politically cl as closely as I can. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm Nancy Lindisfarne. Um, like Jonathan, I'm an expatriate American, but living in Britain, where I've been for 50 years. Um, I'm trained as an anthropologist and worked first in Iran uh, with pastoral nomads and then in the late 60s, early 70s in Afghanistan, again with people who were semi-nomadic um, Pashtuns in the north, and then went on to actually um, do a study of practiced Islam in Turkey in a small town at a time when everybody said, why are you paying any attention to Islam? It's long since passed that we're a very modern country in Turkey. And um, eventually ended up also in the Middle East um, in Damascus, um, where I was interested because so much of the Middle Eastern anthropology actually focuses on, or had focused on rural areas to actually do something um, in an urban setting and uh, found myself in a very strange place um, studying wedding rituals among the elite. Um, but uh, so that's my background. I taught anthropology for a long period of time. Like Jonathan, I try to do climate things these days. But I've also been involved with my former partner with whom I did the Afghan field work in a book which is I think quite extraordinary in the circumstances. And that is, I've got it here. In fact, my computer is resting on it. It's Afghan Village Voices. And it was the case that we had done an enormous number of hours of tape recording. And um, my then husband, or my previous husband, um, actually retranslated the tapes, which we translated very early on in the 70s, retranslated them, turned them into English, and they become a very unusual document um, because they are people who are no longer in this area at all. They were driven out as soon as the Russians came in. Um, but talking about their lives um, at Gretton Luke, that is their, them talking, and it becomes a strange kind of archival account. Mm -hmm. So I'm like Jonathan, I haven't been to Afghanistan uh, for a very long time. I think I must have seen it from the Khyber Pass in the 1990s, which doesn't count at all. And but since that time, like Jonathan, I've been following Afghan politics as closely as possible and thinking a great deal, obviously, when we went back to work on this Afghan Village Voices together um, about what we learned and what had happened since. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for being here. And I'm, I'm very excited to speak with you. And the first thing I'd, I'd like to ask is, uh, considering kind of your career background and in particular studying the conditions through an anthropological perspective in, in Afghanistan, 
Uh, I wonder if you can comment a little bit about the class conditions, or I've read a little bit of, of what you've written about the nature of feudal society in, in Afghanistan before uh, the revolutions. And I wonder if we can begin, you know, that's probably like a long historical view, but how this played a role in this kind of desire for a, a socialist modernization project in Afghanistan against the conditions of feudalism. Mm-hmm. Sure. Well, to say it's feudalism doesn't mean it's like it was like European feudalism. Mm -hmm. What it meant was that power lay with um, uh, power lay with men who were big landowners who lived in forts in the countryside. Those were the powerful people, not the city dwellers. Um, and the um, about a bit more than ha maybe half of the population worked as shepherds or sharecroppers of the rural population uh, with uh, and they made enough money to buy enough bread to stay alive for two adults and two children. That was pretty much the steady income and it um, and the uh, the landowner took between two thirds and four fifths of the crop from the sharecroppers. So an enormous level of exploitation. And it was at that time when I, we were there, we were there separately doing different things. It was, um, it was along with Ethiopia, the only country in the world where power still lay with lords in the countryside. Um, and the, the communists hated, um, hated the inequality and hated the lords and wanted to get rid of them and also wanted to modernize. But there was all, the other main political trend was the Islamists, whose politics was coming from the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. And they also wanted to modernize. <laughs> um, and they also wanted to get rid of the, ba uh, the big landowners, but they wanted to do it in a quite a conservative way that protected property. Is that fair, Nancy? Um, yes, I think the proportions that the sharecroppers had to give up to the landlords differed across the country. Circumstances differed to a degree, but basically the poverty was extreme. Um, people had very little choices. And in the rural area that I knew best, which was in the north northwest of the country, really, or north central bit of the country, People were very frightened about the, they had been sent there historically um, a century before to guard that frontier against Russian encroachment. This was part of the Afghan great game where the British empire was encroaching from the Southeast, the Russians from the North. And people had that history and understanding of this great empire to the North and were, most of them really quite informed in one sense. They listened to Radio Moscow, they listened to the BBC, they had a very good idea of what was happening in the world. We were just in the middle of the Vietnam War, the United States was in the middle of the Vietnam War, and they were hearing both sides, but they were also quite paralyzed because they were, I think, as you said, Jonathan, in your um, Jacobin article, their moral center was actually Islamic. 
And one of the things they certainly knew about the Russians was that they were atheists who slept with their sisters. So there was a great kind of confusion and fear. And I think that's part of what one has to understand about the degree of rural isolation um, that these people experienced. And frankly, the lack of, of expectation and hope. I mean, it was a, they were very fearful, very, very fearful. The power of the land, the, the, the local landlords was enormous. They could kill people. They just did kill people. Um, they not only killed people, but um, in one case, while we were there, they killed people, burned their bodies, um, and that was the end. And nobody did anything. So it's, it was a scary place to be in many ways. People had to hang together. And that made them, I suppose, very good fighters in some ways. They're very cooperative people because they were so needy to be a community, a, a village, a, a group of pastoralists moving through the country. They had to stick together or they would be picked off um, like flies. It was like that. And a bit politically different, where I was in the East, a bit politically different because uh, 60 miles from what was Pakistan and what had been British India. And they were pastoralists, poor pastoralists who had often done peddling work, worked as peddlers going down into India. I mean, their grandparents and their great grandparents had done that. But again, as Nancy says, politically extremely sophisticated in my area, not as obsessed with the Russians. Um, in my area, um, obsessed with the uh, uh, with the the British. <laughs> <laughs> still and um and having had uh, you know three wars <laughs> went right through them with the british with the christians and for them in some ways the the russians were a kind of christian really <laughs> um and but the same the terror i remember um there were informers all over the place in the villages and I, I got to where I could tell. I don't to this day know how people told me, but as an informer for the secret police walked into the room, people, they would do something with their eyes and I knew who this person was. And um, the people I spent most time with were a group of poor, um, uh, a group of poor people who had been pastoralists who'd lost almost all of their uh, sheep and were peddling um, yogurt. And I remember one of the, the family I knew best, uh, one of the sisters, her, her husband had been arrested by the police when they were in Kabul in the summer and living in tents. And um, the police brought him back three days later and his entire body was black from beatings and his, um, uh, his stomach was split open and they dumped the body on the ground in front of her and said to her, he ate bad watermelon. Um, and they told me this story as an illustration of how dangerous it was for them. Mm. Because yeah. they, were, they, were they were not working directly for landlords. So they were obsequious when they had to be but they were small peddlers in a market, which is a bit of a different relationship. And their, their terror was of the government. And it should be said, this was in the time 
of the Shah in the time of the king, which is remembered quite rightly. <laughs> the time of peace. Time of peace and paradise. <laughs> As the, the, the old people, the best time anyone can remember. I, I, I thought it was brutally oppressive, but I had no idea what was coming. I think that's the case. I think, I mean, certainly we were in different parts of the country and it makes a difference. Um, in the Northwest, um, I don't think the government actually could reach to police informers, quite frankly. The local governors were terrified of the local warlords, Hans, the big landowners, as Jonathan said, absolutely terrified. And I remember that when Richard Tapper and myself came to do anthropology, we had permission from the center. We approached the local governors, as was proper, and then sub-governors, and they were terrified that something would happen to us because we would be used in some pawn between warlords, and it would come back on their necks. So our it was the government officials themselves who were understanding how vulnerable they were. But all of that said, one of the things Jonathan mentions, I mentioned the listening to the radio, Jonathan mentions their political sophistication. These peasant nomads that we were with had, had a canniness, which was extraordinary. Um, it wasn't just recognizing police spies, but they had a, a thing men and women said and taught their children to keep their thoughts in place. And these were some of the most extraordinarily observant, socially observant people certainly I've ever known in my entire life. They didn't miss a trick. They didn't miss a blink. They didn't miss a, 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 a bit of, you know, a tell and a hand gesture. Um, they were very, very attuned to uh, the social life around them. And as I said, it made them very able to cooperate with each other. Um, and it also created a kind of kindness, I think, which we found very impressive. One of the things which I have said in a number of um, situations mm -hmm. is Richard and I, when we had children, were aiming to raise our children the way these Afghan Pashtuns were raising their own children. We thought they were just very good at this. They they produced nice people, decent people, people with a lot of courage, a lot of social intelligence. And when I say that to people, they simply don't believe me. And <laughs> I find that annoying. What can I say? I, I would add two things about the politics. One is something that Nancy often says, which is that in that country at that time, and even more now, I would think, every shepherd on a mountainside and every 16 year old girl had a complex theory of global imperialism and with lots of evidence and not the same complex theory <laughs> everybody had different complex theories which they then argued about with each other um because that that went with as they say the territory they were people this had been done to in complex unpredictable ways uh, the other thing is that where I was, there was a great deal of class, of actual traditional formal class struggle. And most of this was, um, uh, was 
where I was in the mountain valley I, w- I was in was done by the high school students. Mm-hmm. There was a, a high school at the bottom of the valley and people from every family, at least every small small farmer who owned some of their own land, they sent they sent their sons and sometimes their daughters to, to school there. And they, I think the year I was there, they had seven different actions. Mm-hmm. For instance, um, the surrounding the local doctors to prevent and threatening to beat him up unless he agreed not to sell the medicines he got for free from the government and so on. One thing after another, after another. And behind that, that I was just realizing last night, the uh, uh, a kind of strange social event I was at in the dark in a uh, derelict uh, fort. Um, I was just realizing now it was because the Afghan university lecturer I was with was in fact a communist. And the people we were talking to were the teachers at the local high school. Mm. And they were very, very suspicious of me. Um, and he told them it was all right. Um, but I realized that that was what he was, they were, he was from the city and they were organizing back and forth. So a lot of that going on. Mm-hmm. And where the, um, and, and also people were listening on the radio. They were listening to Bhutto. Not Benazir, but her father, mm. and there was an enormous movement of uh, of uh, peasants and workers, mainly over land yes, yeah. across mm. the, across the border in Pakistan. Or mm. different. Um, again, probably more remote, far less attuned to the national politics, and with barely a hint of student organizing in the local. Um, area. Um, There was some. Um, One of the things that was, however, important was that there was a great ethnic mix in the area that we were with. So actually, the dominant population were probably Uzbek speakers um, associated with Uzbekistan across the border. These Pashtuns that had been brought in as border guards and a absolutely smorgasbord of other people speaking other languages. And one of the things that was happening was that in this area, which was quite fertile, there was a lot of the the beginnings of serious cash cropping um, of cotton, of oilseed, and the Pashtuns themselves were actually uh, producing caracal, Persian lambskins for an international market and so forth. And out of this, these ethnic boundaries, which had been on historically, I mean, points at which people fought. Um, They, in fact, shuffled along pretty well while we were there, but they were being broken down by a kind of class formation. So the local Khans and the Uzbek Begs, in other words, the big men, the landowners across the ethnic divide were finding ways to talk to each other and oppress their peasants. And the people that I mentioned, the six sharecroppers that I mentioned that were killed and their bodies burned were burned by a Pashtun Han, but they were Uzbek sharecroppers. And the Uzbek Begs and that majority population who in theory could have done something did not do something because they were oppressed by members of their own, their own elite as it were. So that kind of class formation went along with this increasing sharecropping um, 
and an understanding that things were going to change because there was some oil in the local area that the Russians were again just beginning to think that they could open up. Um, yeah. If I could come in there. Um, yes, the same thing where I was. Uh, enormous uh, coming together of different ethnic groups. Um, in the valley uh, where these people spent most of their time, the uh, the people at the top of the hierarchy were Pashtuns, and the people I was with who were at the bottom were Pashtuns, and the people in the middle uh, were called Pashi and spoke a different language. But I remember being in a, a an encampment of ten tents, and realizing that everybody in this in these ten tents belonged to a Pashtun tribe, but that their mother tongues in ten tents you had people whose mother tongue was Pashtu, was Farsi, was Pashi'i, um, was Uz Uzbek and Gujar. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yes, but the other thing was because power lay with what was really quite a small number of very powerful families in the countryside, mm -hmm. um, there was uh, the, the process of economic development meant that there was a um uh that there was a kind of enormous hole class hole just below the elite and as soon as they had a university and then two or three universities or even secondary schools the secondary schools and then the universities filled up with boys and and girls who's uh no, that's wrong. With girls from the elite <laughs> and boys, uh, uh, mainly from small farmers who own their own land, um, and had always hated their fathers and their mothers and their grandmothers hated the landlords. They'd always hated them. They'd always hated the elite. So they brought that hatred into student politics, and they bought their their desire for a, a fairer, better world um, with them. Um, so it wasn't it wasn't like student politics in the 60s in the rest of the world. <laughs> it was <laughs> people coming with raw class hatred. Um, um, and but also a, a kind of a feeling that Afghanistan was both economically backward and terribly oppressed. I remember visiting a friend who was in the public hospital who was dying of tuberculosis and his, he was a, a nomad and he, he was, he and his, the other guys on the war, men's ward were telling me about that uh, they had to get money from their families to bribe the hospital orderlies to give them the free food that they were supposed to have. And I said, oh, they do that, that's terrible. And and one of the people there said what turned out to be a proverb, which was Afghanistan Zulumistan, which means the land of the Afghans, the land of tyrants. <laughs> and so that was a that was a, all of these people who were ordinary people from Kabul and from the rural areas in this war, they all knew this. They all they were of many ethnic groups. They agreed on this. This was uh and they saw in the 60s um, uh, a chance, both the communists and the Islamists, to move beyond that. 
I think one side of this that we're not presenting is the kind of cultural understanding of a very deeply egalitarian people who all were utterly disposed to keeping things equal, to being utterly attuned to that. When I talked about this sort of social sensitivity, this came both from Islam in every possible way. It was everyone was equal in the, in the eyes of God. And to a considerable extent, surprisingly, this included men and women at, you know, the, the kind of legal issues around inheritance and, and sort of guardianship and so forth and so on were very often thrown out the window by these people if it didn't make sense to them in terms of, let's say, household survival and so forth and so on. So they were quite capable of throwing the law out, but the principle of equality was enormously important. And that was certainly the case with the, the Pashtuns that we understood. Um, and in so many small ways, this was something that was maintained. So they were also both from a point of an ethnic point of view, but also an Islamic point of view. These were people who were well disposed to understand a kind of communism, an idealism which fights inequality, which is what the landlords, the Zulumistan, was actually standing for, is, is a tyranny, which which they hated because why were these people better than themselves and so forth? And it was entirely because they had a monopoly of violence and they used it. I guess my next thing I would like to ask is, you know, the tumultuous 1970s that would then come right after the period that you're describing. So first 1973, the deposition of the Shah, and then 1978, the Sour Revolution. Can you describe a little bit about what was at play with the, the forces that were coming to power and the, the different factions even within the, the overthrow of the Shah? And also, I'm very interested maybe to include within that a discussion of of what was changing and what you were just mentioning nancy about about women's rights and and how the the idealists that were coming to power or communists that were coming to power were thinking about changing women's rights in the country so what did that look like particularly after the sour revolution right right joe do you want to start and i'll pitch in in a minute because okay um first of all I think there was quite a widespread feeling that change was going to come. Mm -hmm. Certainly in Kabul in the East, that a change of some kind was going to come. There was then, it's very important, 70, 71, there was a famine. Um, we didn't know it then, but it was one of the first climate change famines. <laughs> and uh, and the government the government officials stole the, the grain. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was given by international aid from Russia and America, and they stole the grain and sold it at enormously inflated prices, and the king did nothing for people. And after that, the king was done for in people's hearts. And it meant that when his cousin, uh, who was part of the royal family, but a, a Russian-leaning part of the royal family, um, when he did the coup in 73, um, nobody nobody in the country fought for the king and again when Dowd was overturned um in a a, a, com, a coup led by military officers who were communists in 78 nobody nobody fought for Dowd and then immediately after 
<laughs> the revolution, the fighting began. Um, and so there was a, the, the old way was sort of utterly discredited, but there was a big fight about the new way. The other thing that's perhaps as important as a background to women's, well, two things, as a background to women's rights. Um, one is that um, almost all the women I knew worked hmm. and could not. Nancy's figure is something like four households out of 100 or four households out of 200 mm. could have a, a woman, a wife who didn't work in the fields or with the sheep or whatever. Those were the really rich people who had burkas and all that. And everybody else, the 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 women were in the villages. Um, women appeared to be <laughs> in, in Perda if you hadn't been to the village. But if you were in the village for a time, you saw them everywhere. Mm. Um, uh, so that was um, that that was a kind of bedrock. People didn't choose that or want that. <laughs> <laughs> that everybody had to work, but it was a bedrock. But the other thing was, um, I knew one communist very well, but it was a secret. My politics were a secret I shared with him <laughs> and the other way. Um, and I knew him very well and I stayed with his family and so on. And his, um, his commitment to women's rights was absolute. It was something he went on about. It was part of what communists were in favor of for him and for most of them was sharing out the land and women's rights. And it's important that many of the communists were women. Um, I have a, a different kind of take on this, I suppose. One of the things I think to understand is the actual relationship between men and women in the villages I knew. There was, by the way, no one, not one woman that didn't actually work in the, let's say the 200 immediate households that we knew best, not one. Um, but the households depended absolutely on the contributions of everyone. They, they, the, the extent of poverty, the having only enough bread to eat and so forth and so on, or a little bit more than that, did depend on everybody pulling their weight. And so they would talk about um, a kind of cooperation and to park or and to fuck, this ability to get on with each other in a household. And that meant men and women. So there was a, a fantastic kind of equal relationship about who could do what and who did what. And I mean, there was, of course, a gender hierarchy, uh, there was sexism and so forth, but by and large, this was absolutely um, diluted by the sheer necessity to pull together. Um, that's, I think, terribly important to understand, but it also was the case that because of the kind of economic changes which I was describing, um, people were very well aware of the inflation in bride prices and could actually go back and document over a history of 50 years what had happened and how catastrophic it was presently for a, a young shepherd, um, even from a wealthy household, to actually amass the kind of fortune that was required to marry um, an acceptable bride and so forth. So. That was another side to it. The other and weird side to it, which nobody hears about, is the sexism that one saw, the ideological kind of um, discrimination 
went along with, um, Jonathan and I have written a lot about this, the kind of economic inequality, the more economic inequality there is, in effect, you get an ideological gendered inequality. And so, as I say, households pulled together, they behaved well to each other and to the outside because they had to. And if this went awry, then this is where people became most vulnerable. So actually, a, a loose woman, a man who couldn't support his family, that kind of failure of these kind of gender ideals was, was predated predated upon people would jump on this immediately so people would be cast out if if a woman had an affair and they did um cast out if a man couldn't actually keep his wife from having an affair within the village and so forth and so on this was almost the measure of a household that was coping and so in this kind of stereotyped ideological way, which is the kind of thing that we hear a lot about or have heard about over the last 40 years. What we're looking at is a kind of way in which people measured their ability to protect themselves. And I think that's quite important to understand. So yeah, they knew that bride price was terrible. They were absolutely prepared to have a interpersonal inequality with between women and men and so on. Um, and yet you have this problem of the manipulation of gender um, for status reasons um, as a way of demonstrating political power and so forth. Quite important way, there were also breaks on that use of gendered violence. Um, that it, it's very different, I guess, is what I'm trying to say from the, from the picture and the stereotypes, which we've been fed, particularly since the American war began, um, but actually before that too. I, I waited a bit, to, I was a child in the United States in the 1950s with all of that, you don't know, but all of that meant <laughs> in terms of gender and oppression of women. And in some ways I found the oppression of women in Afghanistan worse. Uh, but in other ways, there were things that were very surprising to me. and. One thing that surprised me was that people lived in patrilineal joint families. They, they went to live with the husband's family. So you'd get in a, in a big joint yeah, family. Would. Yeah. yeah, you'd get maybe four or five women who married in, but, or who were the, 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 the mother of all the sons and so on. And when people were having affairs, the women of the household, including the mother, <laughs> <laughs> of the sons would cover for the woman who was having the affair. Mm -hmm. This was mm -hmm. unimaginable to me coming from an American background, this kind of solidarity between women. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it's a, it's a complex picture. Um, uh, and the, um, but the, the exploitation of land reform though, we're forgetting that side of this. There, there are two bits of this, this juggling act and for myself, I, we were there before this all happened. It was truly something that people couldn't imagine. I mean, couldn't imagine even in the sense of 
ethnic wars or inter-ethnic wars in which one group would be able to dominate another group and, and take land. I mean, land was stolen, but on an individual basis by somebody who was more powerful than the other, and they could actually just intrude or, you know, do that. So it was, it was something that, yes, I say in, unimaginable. Um, it was more, more difficult to think about than bride price. They had some control over bride price, I suppose, was the thing within a particular group or a particular village and so forth. There was some way in which one could negotiate that or find ways to make it easier to actually fulfill the obligations. Whereas land reform was, you were just simply vulnerable. And if you were vulnerable for whatever reasons, then people stole your land. That was it. But when the communists came in in 78, they immediately did, they abolished bride price. <laughs> there are two big formal things, abolishing bride price and land reform, mm. sharing yes. up. Now, neither of those actually happened <laughs> mm. on the ground because what happened immediately was that there was a class struggle. <laughs> um, over the, over centrally, over, over the land. And mm. the communists did not, they took power because they had the support of the young army officers. Um, but they didn't have the support of the conscript, of the conscripts who were most of the army, and they didn't have enough support in the villages. They had a great deal in the cities. Um, and th th that meant they couldn't win in the, mm. in the countryside. And they were, and then they turned to the, the Soviet Union for support. And when the Soviet Union invaded, it became uh, a national war of liberation of a kind that was very familiar to everybody. <laughs> mm -hmm. They had many different stories about. And at that point also, within six months, the support for the communists in the uh, cities had evaporated. Mm -hmm. There were enormous demonstrations in the dark um, in the summer after the Soviet invasion, first in Herat, then Kandahar, then Kabul, where every, where all the men went up onto the roofs of their houses in the dark and all shouted together, Allahu Akbar, God is great. Mm. Um, and that, that told everybody mm. what the popular feeling was. Mm. I um, maybe can go back just to to sort of anticipate this. I remember the first time I was in Afghanistan, we had uh, driven across from Turkey and Iran into Afghanistan and came into Herat city, which is the Western city. And what was absolutely remarkable coming from Iran was the utter lack of sycophancy. <laughs> These people did not give a flying fuck about foreigners in their midst and so forth and so on. There was a a sense of independence, which came from having won these wars against the Britain, a, a sense of autonomy and worth, self-worth, which just simply was not there in Iran. Um, and it was when you talk about people joining together then, that was shared as far as I understand. I mean, Herat is not a Pashtun city particularly. There are lots of Farsi ones, Persian speakers there and so forth and so on. And But it was shared 
by everyone across the country. This was, if there was any national ideology of, of almost any kind, it was, we fought the British three times and we won. There's massive inequality and people have a, a massive tradition of presenting themselves as equals or yes. being terrified. Well, both. <laughs> uh, or both. Yes, it's I've seen people. <laughs> I've seen people standing there agreeing with the Lord or the government official about what must what they do. And they're taking orders from that man and they're visibly standing there crying. Mm with the humiliation of it. Nobody remarks upon this <laughs> because of course they're allowed that bit of autonomy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, from this, I'm, I'm kind of interested then with, with the reaction to the communist revolution and, and the attempts as you write a little bit about, you know, trying to do social revolution that, that ultimately don't pan out. Was it in anybody's mind at this time when, when there was some kind of, reaction to that, that the Americans would use this as kind of the opportunity to get involved. Um, and then I guess that that can kind of take us to the modern situation and the decades of American involvement in Afghanistan. Um, you know, how did American intervention and American imperialism play a role in, in completely undoing any possibility of, of this socialist modernization as limited as it was, as you mentioned? Um, with, of course, people are familiar, I think, with the funding of the Mujahideen and the invasion, but I don't think most people understand the true extent to which America got involved. Wow, I don't think, I think the communists, socialists, anybody who wanted land reform and the end of bride price and things like this, I think they'd done themselves in. I think this is terribly important. And it was long since it was done, it was finished with in the, invitation to the Russians, the terrible, terrible destruction that, that followed that. The, the Americans were, I mean, in a sense, it's hard to know how canny or uncanny they were. I don't think they actually were very smart. I think they knew very little about the country. I don't think they actually gave a flying fuck about the country, basically. It was a it was a, um, a moment where they could do something. It was very easy. Stinger missiles are much easier than other things. You have bunches of people running around. The Russians are losing. Um, I don't honestly think they knew anything very much about the country or cared. But they were powerful enough to work their way into eventually the occupation. But there is a, an important step in this, which is their support for the Taliban in 1990s. I would add, although they didn't understand very much, they worked largely through Pakistani military intelligence, yes, which was yes. a major power in Pakistan, and through Saudi intelligence. Yeah. And those people were the brains. Hmm. <laughs> those are smart, sophisticated people. And they told the Americans who to give the money to and so on. I, I think there was modernization. It wasn't socialist modernization, but the, um, the, uh, the leaders of the Mujahideen in the 1980s who then came to power when the Russians left, those were university educated people um, with the ideas of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a sort of semi-social democratic 
um, ideology. Um, they, uh, but crucially, what happened in the 1980s was that as guerrilla war engulfed the countryside, I think all or almost all of, of the old landlords left. And there was not land reform, <laughs> but it's very complicated trying to figure out what happened. But in many cases, the, the um, people got the land, um, the sharecroppers, but also there was an enormous growth of cities in the 90s and in the over the last 30 years. And that again, it's a process of modernization. Um, uh, but the, I, I think the, what happened in the countryside was an enormous popular uprising. This is mm -hmm. a popular uprising of ordinary people of a very, I read a history once of the American war in Vietnam and in some ways quite like that <laughs> in the sense of a, a grassroots uprising, but one who's a very important, very important to be able to get arms and to get arms you had to go through um, the seven different Islamic parties led by the university people who are brokering the American and Saudi money. Mm -hmm. um, and so those people were the political leadership on a national level, but they were not in military or political control of the resistance. Mm -hmm. And uh, it meant that by... Um, by um, 88, um, when the Russians left, the, um, the, the Islamist political parties, they were the power in the land. But as soon as they came into power, people realized that they were awful, <laughs> that they were behaving as a new bunch of landlords. Well, they were warlords, literally warlords, and actually struggling to take over the country as a whole. And, and, failing, and failing, not least because within any particular area, there would be members of these different Islamic parties actually fighting it out on the ground at that moment when the Russians left. So they were able to cooperate largely to get rid of the Russians. And then, of course, that it played out on a local, it wasn't just at a national or in the urban centers, but it played out acre by acre, hectare by hectare within a local setting as well in terms of a new bunch of, of landlords was trying to create themselves to create bases of power um, in, a, in a rather old fashioned way, really. So, I mean, yeah, modernization, but- Yeah, you're right, you're right. And, but also, I don't want to underestimate how awful um, American imperialism has been <laughs> for Afghans, especially um, in the um, uh, especially in the last twenty-two years. Um, the I mean, and most of all, right now. And there's quite widespread famine and the American government under Biden is, is doing everything they can to stop aid, getting to those people, stop food, getting to those people who are um, in again, a climate change famine. I'm, it's, but the, 
the uh, what happened to the communists? I mean, it was experienced as a a personal and a collective tragedy by everybody involved. It was mm-hmm. what, what, what we 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 got it wrong. There's a a wonderful book um, called The Afghan Tragedy, which was published in late '80s, early '90s. Mm. Which was by a man who was a Pakistani who was a political prisoner at the main political prison in Kabul um, uh, during the the uh, the Soviet years, and his it's it's his description of all the people from all the factions of Afghan communism all talking to each other, mm. the prison, and he said the prison was the only place in the country with complete freedom of speech. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody was agreed <laughs> that they got it wrong. They got it wrong in different ways. They people blamed each other, but people also took responsibility. They it, the lesson for me, which I've taken all my life, was that you can't you can't change the world without the support of a majority. You can, in some cases, install a new dictatorship, but you need if you want to transform society. You need the support of the majority. But you need a principle of equality. Actually systematically sort of managed, if you will, to make this happen. Because to just go back a step, I agree completely. But to go back a step, what happened over the American, after the American war began and then with the occupation, which was almost immediate, was the immense um dumping of funds in various directions via NGOs, via the military itself and so forth and so on, vast amounts of money that were not actually equally distributed in any possible way. They were grabbed by this one and that one and the next thing. Um, it didn't mean that you came to the city for a job, though many people did, but that required a different kind of sycophancy to keep that job. But there were many impoverished people that came too because the countryside had been impoverished in this this absorption, the, the, the misdirection fundamentally of funds, the inequality that was actually created by that occupation. And I think to me, that is a further tragedy. I mean, the way you get majorities is you make sure that there's equality and people then can, they don't, the hatred becomes inappropriate and they can imagine themselves empathically with other people. Um, and so you know, there's a step in that, which I think is, is terribly important to recognize. And very important, very important that when the Americans first invaded in 2001, there was no resistance. Mm. And for about three years after that, there was no resistance. There was none. Unlike Iraq, unlike the Soviet invasion, uh, unlike what happened if the United States was invaded, no resistance because people that had at that point, 23 years of war. And they kind of believed the the rhetoric of American democracy and, you know, fairness. Or at least that the Americans were rich, so they would give them some money. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What they didn't, and then they gradually realized that they were getting enormous amounts of um, inequality and that the American occupying forces were conducting a war with the rural population looking for bad guys without the bad guys fighting them. (laughs) 
that's why so many people who went to Guantanamo were innocent of anything mm-hmm. <laughs> was they were just sweeping up people and um the and so very slowly and reluctantly the Afghan population turned against the America it's it's important to understand that people in Afghanistan don't necessarily support the Taliban now, but given a choice between their actual experience of the American occupation Hmm. and the Taliban, who they know, (laughs) uh, for the majority of them, the Taliban are better than the American occupation. Hmm. And the tragedy, in a terrible way, the tragedy that befell the left and the communists in the 1980s um of siding with the invader was repeated mm. by the people in afghanistan who were who were feminists or who were democrats who who wanted who wanted to believe the american dream and wanted to believe what the ngos were saying they sided with the invader and they sided with to be brutal the torturers <laughs> And they became systematically Islamophobic. And so, they became, yeah. So I mean, um, yeah. Yeah, um, and and the the tragedy was repeated. And some people are probably familiar about what what's happening with the famine and the continued yeah. sanctions, uh, the freezing of of all all aid and and all possible economic life in, in Afghanistan. But you know, I wonder because you wrote I, I read the article about the the end of the U.S. occupation and, and you what you were just mentioning of the fact that mm-hmm. to to an extent this was a victory over the United States and now it seems from perhaps we can analyze it and of course things are still occurring but the the U.S. is going out of its way to destroy Afghanistan as sort of a reprisal for that so you know what exactly is happening on the ground and, and the tragedy of it still it even after this withdrawal, people, I think in the US, even a lot of people on the left saw this and said, the US is withdrawing. And then they kind of like moved on and forgot about that Afghanistan even existed. But of course, as, as you're saying, it's still like the US is still killing many, many people regardless. Killing them deliberately through famine, through allowing this to happen. Um, it was well known that this was going to be the upshot. and. I think that becomes it becomes a kind of genocide and needs to be called out for just that reason. You don't leave people in these kind of circumstances without any way to feed themselves when you've actually left their country in a complete and utter shambles. Um, so frankly, evil. I mean, just evil. But the terrible consequences are that, I mean, I don't have a big brief for right wing Islamists, but I actually believe that the Taliban, when they first came to power and then were eventually pushed out, there was a kind of fundamental decency about these people. I believe that they were quite sincere about wanting to manage to be a government in the country and to put things right. And of course, in the circumstances of famine 
in being systematically as a as a country being impoverished they themselves then move desperately to the kind of same place that jonathan was describing in terms of the communists um in the face of their lack of control of the population uh, before the russian occupation in other words people in those circumstances, you can imagine why these people turn to violence, turn to manipulating inequality and so forth. They are themselves threatened, their ideal, they cannot realize their ideals. And I believe that they had them. I, I have no doubt about that actually. Um, but they, they are unrealizable in the circumstances of this systematic impoverishment that is this deliberate impoverishment that has happened after the Americans left. So, so we now see it, which I think is what the Americans were actually looking for. You have a confirmation that the Talmud were really terrible. They continue to be terrible. There are things in the paper now about, yes, they are actually making the radio announcers, the women radio announcers wear the burqa and so forth. And there was a wonderful thing I think in maybe our private eye, I can't remember where all the all the 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 men who were also on television in Kabul were putting veils upon their faces as well. Now that's a pretty clever kind of thing for people to do. And you have to understand that these are people trying to deal with a government which is no longer capable of really managing to help the people because they Absolutely, their funds have been frozen, thanks to Biden, and so forth and so on. There is no money. There is simply no money. That's my take. And, yes, and there is, the Taliban are seen widely, and I think correctly, in Afghanistan as attempting to compromise, mm -hmm. attempting to compromise with the European powers, with Pakistan, and with um uh and with the united states yeah. um and um and widely seen also that this compromise is not working and one of the things that's very important in this current situation is there is now an opposition to the taliban from the right which was very small um which is under the banner of isis and the um the the they have two bits to their political program one is no compromise no compromise with imperialism isis but the other one is a sunni chauvinism against the shia minority mm. who are the who are the poorest of the groups of people in afghanistan um and there have been now there have been a lot of bombings of shia mosques but also a lot of them of schools um, with Shias in them by ISIS. So you can see a, and the the Taliban position, <laughs> the, the Taliban position is that we are all Muslims mm. and that we are all brothers. And immediately the Taliban came into Kabul, they immediately sent their troops and their guerrilla commanders to the Shia mosques to protect the Shias. Mm. Um, and, but they are, people are becoming more and more desperate. So the, um, it just breaks my heart. One of the Afghan journalists that I follow on Twitter said this week, he said, now we see that the only way 
in which the United States and Afghanistan are similar is that our school children are being killed. <laughs> um, and this is, this is, um, uh, uh, I don't know. But the other thing is, it's important. The women who present the news have to wear a burqa, but they're still presenting the news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The, the fact that the, the guys are bailing up there, at every level there is a political context go, contest going on. And I, 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 yeah, yeah. Go sorry, love. And the thing I, I carry away most is that these, the people in Afghanistan have tried every globally available ideology, <laughs> every globally available set of politics they have tried. <laughs> because they need something and all of the sets of politics that are available to them have failed them. I, I think one has to, of course, because in a sense, like any nation state, it is an artificial creation. Um, it's got a global place. I mean, if one looks at the geography of the country, if one refers back to the ISIS uh, Taliban dynamic that Jonathan has described, you have to understand this in terms of what's going on with the Saudi Arabians and the Iranians, with the Americans, with Hezbollah. In other words, these they, they aren't left alone and they have very few things that they can themselves control and manage because they become so useful as a, uh, an international plaything, which is what we've seen over this 50 years, um, or before that, when the um, the Americans and the Russians were actually um, vying for Afghan support, there's there's a madness in in trying to cope in these circumstances. I mean, the very fact that they remain decent and as we have an Afghan friend that works just down the road and we talk to him every, every, every Sunday when he's there, he's an engineer, but he's working in a shop to keep going. And he goes back and forth to Afghanistan and so far so good on the ground, the Taliban are not corrupt. So, I mean, you have oh, that's this very important. It is, they have not, they've never been corrupt. This is one of the weird things is that they just have not taken bribes and they've, they've eschewed this and so forth and so on. And he says that that remains the case now, but also understands, as Jonathan said, that in fact, the violence is, is increasing and is terrible. And if you think of it in Marxist terms, in class terms, this is the Taliban are they're the poor <laughs> they're the poor majority in in the pashtun areas they they are the uh that's their class background mm. the leaders of the islamists were educated people coming from background of some land or some wealth in the country in the city and so on these are this is a movement of people from the villages with whose families have almost nothing uh, and you can become very corrupt very fast if you come from that background. Of course you can. Um, and this may happen. But I think the other thing is 
the ideas that Afghans have been trying out are ideas that Nancy's been talking about their own values, but the political solutions they've been trying are mm -hmm. political structural solutions that aren't their values <laughs> mm -hmm. that come from somewhere else in the world. I think it's very important that there is a, there's a mass movement of economic resistance right now in, um, in Pakistan. It comes and goes in Iran, but it's often very big. These are the people in Iran, they speak Farsi, as do so many people in Afghanistan. In Pakistan, so many of them speak Pashto. Do you know what I mean? These are these are open borders. <laughs> um, and Pakistan. But the point is, there's still, yeah. in many ways, intellectually, again, it's the artificiality of a nation state. But that is why it can be used as a football, is because it becomes... Um, separable i suppose and and something i mean that's a it's a complicated thing but i think we lose sight of that because so much of the news is actually focusing on the state itself rather than looking at the cross-border ideologies the politics cross-border the actual personnel that have relatives on the other side also i think there has grown up a tradition on the left I was going to say in the West, but it's quite general that solidarity is solidarity with people whose politics are like yours. <laughs> and you're not going to get very far. And what we need in the face of climate change, in the face of economic, you know, you can see the system around us imploding. Um, what we need is basic human sympathy with other people because they are up against it. It's a class sympathy with the other people who are up against it as, as we are up against it. And to start from that and then to work towards an, an internationalist politics, it's a politics of solidarity, but at base, everybody, everybody ought to have enough to eat, to stay alive. Well, thank you both so much. I, I really, really, this has been an incredible conversation and learn so much from this. I have one very last thing, which is typically I, I let people recommend books or sources or information that people can turn to to learn more about the subject. Um, you've mentioned throughout a couple of books that that are good for people to read. But yeah, so that would be my last thing is if if people are interested in learning more about the history in, in particular of, of, of Afghanistan and, and also of reading sources to try and follow what's happening because i know you mentioned on, on one of the articles that it's really hard to follow the western press reporting on the situation because most of the time it's quite inaccurate so yeah i guess that would be any recommendations of books to read and sources to follow to keep informed until the american withdrawal the best journalism was oddly enough in the new york times um, it's still pretty good in the New York Times. It's almost completely Afghan journalists. Um, uh, I would think uh, uh, who to read now. I, I have a big problem with that uh, because, of course, it's not safe <laughs> uh, to, to comment much. And the people who know what's going on are people who all have are in Afghanistan or have family. Um, I would think that our long article at the Anne Bonny Pirate website on the American withdrawal from Afghanistan. If you go to that, that has in the footnotes mm. 
the books oh. we really liked. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and if you pursue it from any one, there's no one overarching political analysis and there's not much good class analysis. But if you take those different bits where people are describing, this was my experience, mm. Mm. and you put them together, then you... I, I think, well, no, I think about two books. One is uh, by Clates and Clates called Love and War in Afghanistan. I think we've tells, referenced that. I hope so. Yeah, we have. It tells you for one town about what people's experience was in the 80s and 90s and on many different sides in local politics and the way they had to forgive each other. <laughs> <laughs> for dreadful things. The other one is for the experience of the American occupation. There's a there's a book by um, uh, uh, somebody who was in the American army who called himself Johnny Rico called Blood Makes the Grass Grow Green. Yeah, there's a, still a need to 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 think outside the the kind of media, the dominant media, which is very ugly and very racist and Islamophobic and so forth. Well, excellent. Thank you so much. Uh, I I really really enjoyed this and I'll link uh, your website in the article as well, because that has been probably the best source to read your, your writings on the subject. All right. Thank you both so much. Take care. Bye. Bye bye.